Father, we do thank you and we praise you, Lord, for your love and your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your compassion, that you're a compassionate God when we do not deserve it. And Father, I pray, Lord, as we look at the compassion you showed toward your doubting prophet and then the compassion you showed toward a, a sinful woman, Father, I pray that we would just see ourselves in both cases, Lord, that there are times when we doubt you, when we never should. And Lord, it's, it's through our sinfulness that we, we are brought to a place of conviction and seeing our need for you as a Savior. So Father, I just pray, Lord, you minister to each heart who's here this morning. Prepare our hearts for communion as well. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. By way of quick review, in Luke chapter 7, we looked at the first half last week, and I titled this chapter, A God of Compassion. You know, our God, a lot of times people view God as a, a God up in heaven just waiting for us to make a mistake so He can smoke us. And you know, a lot of people think that that's the way God is. And even, you know, you see cartoons and things, He's got a lightning bolt in His hand. But that's not the God that we serve. Our God is a God of love, of grace, and He's a God of compassion. And last week we saw that there was a Roman centurion that came to Jesus who had a very sick uh, servant. And when he came to the Lord, he came to Him, and we, he came with marvelous faith. It's pretty awesome how you see an example in this man who was a Roman, who was under authority of Rome, and he came to Jesus and said, I'm a man under authority, and I know that if I say to my men, go and do, they do, and I know that you also are a man under authority. You just speak the word, and my servant will be healed. And the Bible says that Jesus said he had never seen faith like that, not even in Israel. And it's awesome to me that here's this Roman centurion, and how did he have such faith? The Bible tells us that he heard about Jesus. Somebody told this Roman centurion about Jesus, and having heard about the Lord, his faith was built up to the point where he trusted that if Jesus just spoke the word, that a servant would be healed. And that's exactly what happened. So we saw his compassion toward those with, that with humility and marvelous faith. And then second of all, we saw his compassion toward a, a grieving widow. If you guys remember that story from last week, the widow was grieving because her only son had just died. And it was an incredible scene as she's marching with her family, what's left of it, maybe mainly friends, maybe no family, and she's marching with her friends headed to the, to the cemetery with her only son's body. Her husband had already died, so this was a, a major grievous situation. Not only had she lost her husband and lost her son, which is grievous enough, but widows in those days were cared for by their children. And this was the only child she had left. So not only had she lost her family, but now she was going to be totally destitute. And as she's moving towards this, this funeral march, towards the cemetery, and no doubt grieving to a point that we cannot even understand, along comes Jesus with his crowd as they're heading into the city. And these two crowds meet. And what an awesome moment as we see that Jesus, out of compassion for this grieving and mourning widow, reached over and touched her dead son and said, Arise, and he rose from the dead. And you know what? What's awesome about that to me is that our God, when we're mourning, He mourns with us. When we weep, He weeps with us. When we're going through difficulties, He's right there. We never go through any of the things we struggle with alone. Our God is gracious. And so we see that He touched the Son, and when the Son raised up, no doubt, what kind of testimony do you think that might have stirred? You know, you're on your way to a funeral, and now all of a sudden it goes from, from a, a time of weeping to a time of celebration and great joy. And that's a picture of what happens to each one of us when we're touched by Jesus. Amen? When He touches us, we go from a place of sin and separation from God to a place of weeping and great, uh, to a place of joy from weeping because He's touched us and we have become His children. So we're going to continue on this morning looking at the compassion of our Savior. And we're going to look at compassion in a real unique environment. John the Baptist, 
We're going to look at John the Baptist. Jesus, as we're going to see in the text, said, A men born among women, none greater than John the Baptist. And we're going to see that John the Baptist doubts God. We're going to see God show compassion toward him in the midst of doubt. We're also going to see our Savior condemn those who deny him and deny his prophets. And then lastly, time willing, we'll see our Lord's compassion toward uh, a woman who comes before him with a heart of repentance and worship. So let's begin in verse 18 and look at our Lord's compassion toward his doubting prophet. Look at verse 18 of Luke chapter 7. It says, Then disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. Now who's the John we're speaking of? This is John the Baptist. Now what do we know about John the Baptist? We know that John the Baptist was one of the most mighty men of God. And we know that his disciples have come back to him and they're going to report to him all the things that are happening with Jesus. Now, they would no doubt reported to him that Jesus just raised this boy from the dead with his touch, that he'd spoken the word and the servant was healed. No doubt he t- may have talked to him about the fact that he just called all these apostles to follow him and a large crowd was following him everywhere he went. They no doubt talked about the fact that he healed the multitudes, the demonized, the lepers, etc. And then the fact that he was teaching with power the Sermon on the Mount. But what's interesting is, where was John when all this was going on? John the Baptist is sitting in prison. And John the Baptist, we know that he was the forerunner of Christ. The Bible says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, that he leapt for joy in his mother's womb when Mary came in and Jesus was in her womb. We know that he preached boldly, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We know upon seeing Jesus, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We know that he baptized Jesus in the Jordan. We know that he saw the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove. We know that he heard the voice when it opened up from heaven which said after Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We know that all of these things happened, but now look at verse 2, or verse 19, excuse me, John's going to question Jesus. And it says, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, and, and them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? So he calls two of his disciples and says, Go ask Jesus if he's really the one we've been waiting for, or if we're really waiting for somebody else. Wait a minute. What? John, wait a minute. Wasn't he there at the baptism? Wasn't he the one that said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Wasn't he filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb? How could this be that this mighty, awesome man of God is now doubting the Lord? You know what? John the Baptist is not alone in being one who allows his circumstances to create moments of doubt. I don't know if any of you have ever gone through that, where you go through a difficulty and you say, God, where are you? God, what happened? John the Baptist is in prison. Why was he in prison? Because he had gone up to Herod, King Herod, and said, You are an adulterer. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he gets thrown into jail. Now, when he saw Jesus coming, he knew that he was the Messiah. I believe that John the Baptist still did not have a complete understanding of what the Messiah was. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. Most of the Old Testament people thought the Messiah was going to come and rule and reign on earth. And now he's sitting in prison. He probably thought, oh, I'm only going to be here for a little while. And now he starts hearing reports that Jesus continues to do all this awesome and mighty work while he's rotting in jail. Oh, wait a minute. You mean people are getting healed? I, mean, I would have liked to have seen that. Somebody rose from the dead? Really? Wow. I'm, but I'm sitting in prison. Go, go ask him if he's really the one. I mean, he, how could he have forgotten about me like this? And you know what? We see many prophets in the, New, in the Old Testament who, may, who fell under the same mistake. You know, what are you waiting for? Lord, you're the Messiah. Come and get me out. 
John the Baptist, again, not alone. Here's some others. How about Moses? Those of you coming on Wednesday night, what did Moses do? Oh, I, I, can't, I can't do it. Oh, you know, I'm a stutterer, Lord. I, yeah. uh, get someone else. Now, he'd already seen the burning bush. He'd already put his hand in his, in his cloak and pulled it out and seen that his hand was full of leprosy and taken it away and put it back out and it wasn't leprous anymore. He'd, gra- he'd dropped his rod on the ground and turned to a serpent. He grabbed it by its tail and it became a rod again. All of these things had happened, and yet he still said, Oh, I, I can't do it. What is that? That's doubt on behalf of a prophet. What about Elijah? There was a point where Elijah said, Lord, just come kill me. I can't take it anymore. Lord, these people aren't turning back to God. What about David? David doubted greatly when he was being pursued by Saul. What about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet? And you see all this doubt in these mighty men of God. And you know what? I love the fact that the Bible does not paint our, the, the prophets in the Word of God as being perfect. Aren't you? Wouldn't it be hard to... Oh, man, I'll, I'll never be Moses. I look at Mo, and certainly Moses was used mightily by God, but I think, you know, I've got to hang out with Moses. That guy made some major mistakes just like me. You know, guys like David, you know, I think David, a man of God's own heart. David, a murderer and an adulterer. You know what we see is we see that God does not paint a false picture of his prophets. He shows that they are sinners in need of a Savior. Amen? And here's John, this mighty man of God, doubting. And I want to encourage you, if you're here this morning, and you're going through a difficulty and you're doubting for whatever reason, I want you to know that God still loves you, He's still a God of compassion, and He's still in control. Amen? And He's still faithful, no matter what's going on in your life right now. So He begins to question Him. Is there another one coming? Unbelief. Now, I want to say this. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is when we don't understand what God is doing and why He's doing it. Lord, why are You doing this? Unbelief is having clearly been taught the truth of who God is and denying it. Those are two different things. But he's going through doubt. So his doubt arose when he did not fulfill his expectations. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like that? Lord, why am I going through this? Why haven't you set me free? Don't you love me? I sit here week after week, month after month, and Lord, it doesn't change. Lord, you know I've been praying for a spouse. Lord, you know I've been praying for children. Lord, you know I've been praying for a new job. Lord, you know I've been praying for all these things. And Lord, you're just not delivering. Lord, you're not providing for me. You're not bringing it to me. And you know what? I want you to know that God is in control. And sometimes in frustration we may even say, is there another? The word there in verse 20, look it says, And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And the word another in Greek is another of a different kind. So should we be looking for somebody else? And sometimes in our doubt and our struggles, we do that. We might say, you know what? Maybe I ought to try something different. Maybe I, ought to go to the, maybe I ought to go down to the psychologist and get their counsel. Maybe I ought to run over here and try the get-rich-quick scheme, because then maybe that will bring me joy. Or maybe I ought to go try this. And we, we think of all these different ways and methods that we can try to find joy. Let me just tell you right now, the only place you're going to find joy is from Jesus Christ. Amen? Any other place you look, you'll be, found, you'll be empty. And so he says, do we look for another? Now look what Jesus does. Look at his response. You might think he, he might just smoke John the bat. Wait a minute. John? What's up with you, right? He could have just transformed himself over there and, you know, smoked him or hit him with the head with a stick or something. John, hello, John. You remember me? Remember, you know, baptize me, the, the Holy Spirit, dove. This is my beloved son. Remember that? Filled with the Holy Spirit from your mother's womb. Remember leaping for joy? Remember that? That's me. No, he didn't do that, though. Instead, what he did, he showed compassion toward him by confirming that he truly is the Jesus that he had been looking for. How does he do that? By performing miraculous miracles, by preaching the gospel, and fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Look at verse 21. 
And that very hour he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you have seen and heard, that the blind see, that the lame walk, that the lepers are cleansed, that the deaf hear, that the dead are raised, and that the poor have the gospel preached to them. He said, Go back and tell them that I'm still at work. And you know what? Just because you're going through a dry and difficult time, just because maybe you're Moses in the desert right now and you're, and you're going through a struggle in your walk, does not mean that God is not still in control and God is not still at work. Amen? John, you're in jail, but God's still at work. No matter what's going on in your life, God is still faithful, God is still in control. Here's a hard thing for me to tell you, but it's reality and we need to hear it. Sometimes... It's God's will that we stay in jail. Sometimes it'll work more ultimately for God's glory that that difficulty remain in our life. Paul had a thorn in his flesh his entire, entire ministry. It never went away. Was Paul a man of faith? Did Paul love God? Did God not use Paul to write much of the New Testament? Yes. But that thorn remained there. Why? Because God would use it for His glory. And sometimes we go through difficulties that God might be glorified. He also fulfilled Scripture by doing the things that He did because it says in Isaiah, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of, tongue of the dumb shall sing. And that's exactly what He had done. And these are words that John the Baptist would know that this is a fulfillment of Scripture in the action that Jesus had done. Verse 23. And blessed is He who is not offended because of Me. The word offended there in, in our language is where we get the word scandalized. It refers to, to being baited or trapped into doing something. And here's the interesting part. John was in danger of being trapped because of his concern about what Jesus was not doing. He was stumbling over his Lord and his ministry. Jesus was gently telling him to have faith, for his Lord knew what he was doing, even if it meant leaving him in prison to die as a martyr, and that's exactly what was going to happen to John. Did John ever get out of prison? No. John was beheaded. But you know what? When we have a, a physical perspective, we think, man, that just doesn't seem right. Let me ask you a question. Does it seem right that the Son of the living God would come to earth, live a sinless, perfect life, then be beaten, mocked, scourged, tormented, and suffer and die the most horrendous death in the history of all mankind, that you and I might have eternal life? Does that seem fair? From a physical perspective, it doesn't. But from a spiritual one, our Heavenly Father said this is the only way it can be done. And sometimes the, the, the way we will best glorify God is through our suffering. There are many in the church today that are looking for, God's, for the church to do these great and wondrous things. And, and I want to say God has the church here to do great and wondrous things. But sometimes I hear we talking about well, we need to be politically involved. And, and I don't disagree with that. But you know what? The church is not about being politically involved. And we need to help, you know, get the economic structure in place. And, you know, we need to help fix some of these social problems that are in the world today. And, and you know what? The reality is that that's not the focus of the church. The focus of the church is to preach Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead, to see lives change, to see people born again. And when that happens, all that other stuff will be fruit. Amen? You know what? People shouldn't come here just so they can get the so social or moral ethical message of the day. They need to hear about Jesus because that's what will give them life. That's what will give them hope. You know what? You can feed somebody for 10 years every single day, but if they never come to know Christ, they're still going to die in their trespasses and sins. We can turn the economy around. We can turn the political system around. We can get the people in office that we want. We can get rid of abortion, which we need to. But the reality is, unless people come to know Jesus Christ, they're still going to die in their trespasses and sins. And that's why the focus has got to be the gospel. 
Amen? That's what the church is for. God changes the world by transforming the lives of people. And you know what? John was struggling because he thought the Lord was going to do something different. And sometimes we struggle because we want the Lord to do something different. Verse 24, after questioning John, and after sending back a message to John, he's going to commend him to all the people who were there. Because some people standing around might have thought, did you hear that? John was just asking if Jesus is the one. Wait a minute, he baptized, that was the, wait a minute, he, oh, he's a mess. And the Lord then turns to the crowd and commends John the Baptist. Look at verse 24. shows that even when we've doubted, God can still use us. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are generously apparelled and live in luxury are in the king's court. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, more than a prophet. John was not a reed shaken in the wind. What that means is John was not a compromiser. He did not compromise the gospel. He didn't dial it down. He didn't water it down. He didn't say, oh, who's going to be in the crowd today? Oh, the Pharisees. Well, let me have a Pharisee-focused message. Oh, it's the, it's the kings today. Let me have a king's kind of message. Let's talk about seven ways to royal joy. You know? He didn't do that. He didn't, he didn't taper the message to the audience. He preached Jesus Christ and didn't care who heard. Amen? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're going to keep, that's, repent anyway. Herod, you need to repent. He didn't go into the king and say, oh, you're a wonderful, most, most magnanimous, awesome King Herod. Let me kiss your ring. He didn't do that. He said, repent. Got to like John. He did no compromise. He preached the gospel without compromise. May we be the same way. Verse 25, it says, did he, did he have these great garments? Was he, he, was he effective in front of people? Was he, this, was he apparelled in, in great garments? You know what? He was not a popular pre, uh, preacher. He'd enjoy the friendship of great people and the pleasures of wealth by catering to the world. John did not compromise. And it says, but what did you go out and see? He said, a prophet. And yes, I say to you, more than a prophet. Look at verse 27. This is he who it is written, before I send my messenger before your face, who will, perform, who will prepare your way before you. John was not only a prophet, he was the fulfillment of a prophecy that was 400 years old that said that God would send a forerunner before the Messiah who would prepare the way for him. It's in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy some 400 years later. So even though he had doubted, he was still a mighty man of God. Even though he had moments of frustration, God had still used him in a great and a powerful way. So if you're here today and you're thinking, man, you know, I've blown it, I've, I've made mistakes, God can still use you. Amen? No matter what you've done, God can still use you. God desires to work in and through your life. He still loves you. No matter what you've done, that's our God. And so we see that he was not only a prophet, but fulfillment of prophecy. Look at verse 28. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is in the least of the kingdom is greater than he. So there's never been a, a prophet greater than John the Baptist. But wait a minute. He's sitting in prison doubting Jesus, but he says there's never been a greater prophet. Wait, well, wait a minute. That means he's greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Daniel, greater than Elijah, greater than David. That's what Jesus said, so yes, he was. Amen? But what made John the greatest? Was it his righteous living? Was it his faith? Well, not always, because we see he's in prison saying, well, is there another one coming? You know what it is? It's quite simply the fact of his closeness 
to the Messiah. What makes John the greatest? The position that God gave him to announce the coming Messiah. Can there be anything greater than baptizing the Son of the living God? Can there be anything greater than preparing the way for the Lord who was to come? Can there be anything greater than to be the last of the Old Testament prophets that points to the coming Messiah? There can be nothing greater. And you know what? It wasn't because John was great, but because the message that God gave him to deliver was great. Amen? Because what did John say? I must decrease that he might increase. Even though he's the greatest of the prophets, he said, I must die. And it says here that least in the kingdom is greater than he. So who are those who are least in the kingdom? Who's that? Raise your hand if you think you're one of those people. Everybody in this room that's given your life to Jesus Christ, it, we are the least in the kingdom. And you know what's awesome about that? Those of us who are under the new covenant, we've been born again, we've been adopted, accepted, redeemed, chosen, forgiven, enlightened, given an eternal inheritance. We're going to heaven. Our name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We are greater than any of the prophets. Why? Not because of who we are, but because of who we are in Jesus Christ. Not because of what we've done, not because of the gifts we have, but because of who Jesus Christ is and our relationship with Him. Amen? Isn't that good? That Bible says that we're not because of us, but because of Him. As born-again Christians, we are children of the King. He talked about the King who was coming. We're His kids. Amen? How much do you love your kids? More than you can... So much it hurts sometimes. You can't even stand it. I look at pictures of my kids while I'm studying and start crying sometimes. Why? Because I just love them so much I can't even put it into words. And I'm one of His kids. That blows my mind. That God loves me like that. Those of us in the least of the kingdom are greater than the prophets. Look at what it says in verse 29. When all the people heard Him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. So when they heard the words that Jesus spoke, even the tax collectors, the sinful people, glorified, justified God and said, it is good that John the Baptist has come. It is good that you have used him to preach the truth to us. It is a blessing that we've been touched by him. That people judge that what God had done was perfect. Now look what it says in verse 30 though. This is scary. I want you to see this. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves. Those of you who struggle with whether or not there's free will, what does that say? What did they do? They rejected God. You know, the Bible says that it is desired that none should perish, no, not one. For God so loved the elect, no, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't die for some, He died for all. But the, but the vast majority will reject Him. And here we see the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, are going, who reject God. They say, we don't want the will of God for our life, we want our own will. There's a battle in every single life in this room. Every one of you is, is right now either had made the decision or is going to make a decision on who is going to rule and reign in your life. There's only one throne, you guys. There's only one. Either you're on the throne or God's on the throne. God is not on the throne for an hour a week. You don't share the throne with God because He doesn't do that. Amen? So either Jesus Christ is on the throne of your life, either He's your Lord, your Savior, your King, your best friend, and your life is de dedicated and devoted to Him, or you're still on the throne and it's all about you. And there's no in between. The Bible says you're either for me or you're against me. Being kind of saved doesn't happen. Hoping you're going to heaven, that's not a good place to be. Amen? There's no hope so for the kingdom of God. I know for sure that through His shed blood I'm going, not because of me, but because of Him and His word and His promise. Amen? And so, who's on the throne? Who's the king? 
Who's the Lord? Who's in charge? But these men rejected it and said, you know what, we're not going to be baptized by Him. We want our own throne. We've got our own religion. We've got our own path. Number one thing I hear when I witness to people or anything else, I believe there's many paths to God. You know, what? that is the biggest bunch of foolishness and noise you could ever hear. Well, and in some ways it's true. All paths do lead to God, but only one leads to heaven. Amen? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. You know, Buddhism and Hinduism, and all these, many of them teach reincarnation. Many of them teach many gods. How could you have many gods and one God? How could you have reincarnation and appointed for man once to live and then to die and then the judgment? How could all these things be true? Well, they can't. It's insanity. It's foolishness. And most people who say it just don't want to give up the throne. They reject God. They reject His will for their own lives. Look at verse 30. 31, excuse me. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? What are they like? So now the Lord, after commending John, He's going to condemn those who rejected Him. He says, They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned for you, and you did not weep. Jesus compared the people of His generation to people who were, who were, like, who were childish, and nothing pleased them. No matter what was going on, it didn't make them happy. Nothing was good enough. They always had to have something else. There's always something better coming. Oh, I've got to find that. I've got to try this. I'm trying that. Oh, we, we played this and you weren't happy with it. So now we did this and that wasn't good enough for you. You know what? You're not going to find the answer in anything the world has to offer. There's only peace in one place, and that's from the Prince of Peace, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It says, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking, and you said, He has a demon. So John the Baptist came and he lived in the wilderness... And he preached one message over and over and over and over again. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was like a broken record. He just preached that all the time. Some people used to say to me, you know, Pastor Dave, you always got to talk about Jesus and being crucified. You know, right? Yeah, I better, huh? Because that was the message of the Bible, amen? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We don't take that out of the Bible. Oh, well, we've heard that before. Just put that away. You know what? Every time I hear it, I'm thankful for that message. How about you? Amen? Aren't you thankful? We're going to commemorate His death on the cross in just a little bit, and I'm so thankful for it. And so, these men, when they looked at John the Baptist, they said, he must have a demon in him, because all he preaches is law. Now look what it says. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. John the Baptist was kind of a lone ranger in a way, and that he went out and he just preached it. And he, didn't, he wasn't looking to make any friends. He was just preaching the gospel. They said, oh man, that guy's demonized. Jesus comes along, preaches grace, makes friends with every sinner, and they say, oh man, that guy's a glutton and a wine-bibber. It doesn't matter which extreme they're on, both of them came bringing in the same message, and they rejected them both. And you know what? They're going to reject every single prophet if they will not reject the truth of God and His Word. Verse 35. But wisdom is justified by all her children. True wisdom is justified. It's demonstrated in the changed lives of those who believe. Those who pardon their hearts to the gospel will reject it regardless of the method or the messenger that comes. You know the number one thing we need to do when we share our faith, you guys? Let me encourage you. Pray for your mission field by name and pray that their hearts will be softened to hear the Word of God. It's not a new program that's going to turn them around. Oh, I've never heard it that way before. Okay, I believe. That's not, what, that's not how it's going to work. It's got to be a heart that is softened by the Holy Spirit, the Word of God going out in power of the Holy Spirit, touching them 
and their lives being transformed. So we see here the compassion of God toward a man who had doubted him. He even commends the work that he's done, and then we see him condemning those who rejected his prophets. Finally, we're going to finish up by looking at a sinful woman who's been forgiven by God. And this is an awesome message here, because we're going from from condemnation of those who rejected the prophet to our Lord's compassionate response to a sinful woman's act of repentance and worship. And you know what? This message to me is powerful. Because I want you to see this. If you haven't been paying attention, please take a look at these next few verses. Because this is incredible what we see here. Take a look at this, the beginning in verse 36. It says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Now, I think it's interesting to note that Jesus just didn't go to the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners, but he even went to the Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees needed the Word of God too. Amen? Now, they didn't know they needed the Word, but they needed the Word. And when the Pharisees invited him, he went to their house too. Our God is a God of all men. And he went to the house of a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisee, as we're going to see in verse 40, is a man named Simon. And he does not appear to be sympathetic to, D, to Jesus. I believe his motives were to bring Jesus in so they could test him, they could watch him, they could accuse him. And so he's coming to Jesus with a hard heart of accusation. Let's get him in here. Let's take a close look at him. We'll find a flaw. We'll find something we can pick on. We'll find something we can accuse him of being a blasphemer for. Let's bring him into our house and let's take a close look at the Lord. So that's the way that some people approach Jesus today. But I want you to see how someone else approaches Jesus. While Simon, again, was trying to entrap him and accuse him due to his own self-righteous arrogance, we're going to see a party crasher. Because what happens is, he invites all these people to his house. And in those times, in the Jewish times, the rabbis did not even talk to women in public. And they certainly would not eat with a woman in public. And so they're having this, this big feast in Simon the Pharisee, and it's always, it's always interesting to meet these Pharisees, always got these big, huge houses, big enough to have like a banquet hall, you know. And all these people come over to eat. And some people would stand on the outside and listen to the words of these influential men. But a woman would be the last one that was welcome there. And not only that, but how about a sinful woman like, say, a prostitute? But you know what I love about this? Is we're going to see a woman who we don't even see her name. And we shouldn't confuse this with Mary who later... Uh, anoints the feet of Jesus. It's a different time right before he dies on the cross. But there's a woman that is so desperate for God that she's not worried about what people think. She's not worried about customs. She's not worried about, you know, fitting in and doing the right thing from the world's point of view. All she cares about is I'm desperate for Jesus. I want to know where he is. I've got to be near him. Doesn't care what the world has to say. Look at verse 37. It says in verse 37, And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table of the Pharisees, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. So in desperation, she cast aside all the opinions of men. And when she heard where Jesus was, she went and got her most valuable possession, Alabaster was a, a stone or a, I don't know what you'd call it, a precious gem, a stone that was, that was quarried in Egypt, and they would carve it out to make these flasks that would hold really expensive, fragrant oils. Because it was made so delicately, but it was, it was this really awesome 
thing that would hold the scent in there that wouldn't be lost. And they would never use alabaster unless it was a really expensive perfume. A lot of times, in those days, oil was traded. It was very valuable. And the oil could be worth two years' wages, three years' wages in some cases. And many women, they would keep it, and it was their dowry. For the day they got married, they would take that, and that would be given as their dowry to the, the husband's family. And that was, their, that was the most prized possession they had. And when she heard that Jesus came, what did she do? She ran and got her most prized possession, and she went in and she bashed the party, right? She came in and walked in, not welcome, didn't care. Where's Jesus? I want to find him. Where is he? I've got to find him. Where is he? And when she saw the Lord, what does it say? Now, it's interesting to me that she goes to Him with the most valuable possession, but she humbly stands behind Him. And what is she doing when she's standing behind Jesus? What does it say? It says she's weeping. That's the sign of a repentant heart. Weeping. How is Simon? Simon's critical. He's looking for some way to find something out about Jesus that he can blast. Oh, he's a blasphemer. He's looking for something to be critical about. And here comes this woman. She humbly stands behind the Lord and she's weeping. Now look what it says that she does next. It says, She stood behind Him weeping and she began to wash His feet with her tears. She wiped them with the hair of her head. Now in the Bible it says that a woman's hair is her glory. So she takes her most valued possession, she comes to Jesus, she pulls down her hair, which is surrendering her glory. She gets down on her knees and she's weeping over the feet of Jesus and she begins to wash His feet with her hair. She's saying, not my glory, but your glory. Not my possessions, not my, not my most valuable thing, Lord, but everything for you, all unto you. I give everything to you, Lord. I'm on my knees, I'm weeping before you, I, I give it all to you. I hold nothing back. This is a sign of repentance and worship. Simon's critical toward Christ. She's weeping, she's mourning. Why? Because she realizes she's a sinner. And she realizes she's in need of a Savior. And she comes to Jesus Christ saying, Lord, all I have, I can't give you enough. I can't do enough. She didn't care what people thought about her hair being down. That was a no-no. She didn't care what people thought about her taking this wedding gift, this dowry of hers, and using it for the Messiah. Why? Because that is the picture of the ultimate wedding. That when we become the bride of Christ. Amen? And she came to Him and she took all that she had. And it says there, and she kissed His feet. This is an act of affection toward the Lord. And then it says, lastly, that she anointed them with the fragrant oil. It's interesting to me that before that oil can come out of that flask, you know what has to happen to it? You know what has to happen to it? It has to be broken. As soon as it was broken, that fragrant oil filled that whole room. Why? Because that's a picture of worship. And you know what? When we come before God, we need to come to Him broken. Amen? I've said this before. A man or a woman is the only thing that becomes more valuable when broken. Everything else becomes less valuable. We become more valuable to the kingdom of God. When we're broken of our will, we're broken of our passion, we're broken of our desire, we're broken of our thoughts, and instead we say, Lord, everything I have is Yours. That's Christianity. Christianity is not an hour on Sunday and an hour on Wednesday sometimes and, you know, a Holy Spirit rocket over my meal. Dear Lord, thank you for this Jesus' name. Amen. That's not a prayer life. That's not Christianity. Christianity is coming before God in desperation like this woman, bringing all that you have, being broken before Him, 
falling on your face before Him, weeping over your sin, giving up your glory and giving your glory to Him, saying, you alone take the throne of my life. You be my Lord. You be my Savior. You be my King. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what people think. I'm not worried about being popular with men. I just want to be obedient to you. I want to be close to you. I want to show you affection. That's Christianity. Amen? That's a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not two hours a week. It's 24-7. My favorite verse in the Bible is, for me is to live as Christ and to die as gain. Philippians 1.21. Paul said that. For me to live is Christ. My life is wrapped up in one thing, Jesus. It doesn't mean He's first in my life. It means He's first, He's tenth, He's one hundredth, He's one thousandth, He's every number in between. My life is about Jesus. You can't separate me from God. You can't take me away from God. You can't get me to stop talking about God. Why? Because He is my life. And when I die, it's only going to get better. Amen? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. This woman understood, and she comes. The key to repentance is realizing our sinfulness. This woman was painfully aware of her sin. But you know the sad part? Who's sitting at the table? Simon. Look what he says in verse 39. Now when the Pharisees that invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know what manner of woman that is touching him, for she's a sinner. You know what? There's way too much of us looking at others and being judgmental in the church today. Amen? The Bible says, you know, you know, before you start taking the speck out of your brother's eye, get that beam out of your eye. Amen? And one of the things I struggle with as a pastor, I get, you know... Calls I get, people come up and they want to be critical about it. And again, I'm not saying don't come and approach me and talk to me about things. What do you hear about so and so? You know, getting all critical. Hey, so you're perfect then, or how's that working out? No sin on, in your life this week? You, you, oh, well, no, I was kind of blowing it. Oh, okay. I mean, we need to examine ourselves first, amen? We need to search out our own lives, our own heart, before we start looking at the eyes and the hearts of others. And you know what? Simon's all critical. Oh, if he were really a prophet, he'd know that she's a sinner. He wouldn't be touching her. I'll, I'll get her out of the house, right? I mean, that's his attitude. And the Lord looks at her with compassion. And I love this. Look how Jesus responds. And I love when Jesus does this. He does this a lot in the Bible, and I love it when he does it. We're going to see him give an example, a parable of two debtors. But look what it says in verse 40. And Jesus answered and said to him, Did the man ask a question? No. He was thinking about it, but Jesus answered it anyway. you think that would be enough, right? You're thinking about something, and he starts answering your question for you. But that's what the Lord did. And he answers him, and he says to him in verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said to him, Teacher, say it. So there's a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay him, he freely forgave them both. Tell me which one will love him more. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who forgave, he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Now, he asked them, you've got two debtors, 500 denarii, about two years' wages, 50 denarii, just rough numbers, about two months' wages. He said, if one's been forgiven two years' wages and one's been forgiven two months' wages, which one do you think will be more grateful? Oh, probably the one that's been forgiven more. The reality is, though, the Lord's going to illuminate to him that it's not the amount of our forgiveness that gives us a love for God. It's the awareness that we've been forgiven. The problem with Simon is he doesn't even know that he needs to be forgiven. And here's this woman that she doesn't even feel worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. 
She comes in and gives all that she has. She humbly comes up behind him. She pours out her most valued possession. She weeps. She wipes his feet with her glory. She gives it all up to him. And here's Simon being critical, saying, Oh, man, look, he touched her. He touched that sinful woman. You know what? Aren't you glad that our Lord and our Savior is willing to touch sinful people? Amen? Thank you, Jesus. I wrote in my notes. I wrote, he touched the sinner. Oh, thank you, because I need to be touched too, and I'm a sinful, wicked man in need of a Savior. I'm so glad that he didn't go, oh, you're a sinner, get out of here. He looked at her. He saw her heart. He showed compassion toward her. You know what, though? He has no compassion towards self-righteousness. Those who think in and of themselves they're good enough. Those who think they can find their own way. You know what? When do you see the Lord get angry in the Bible? He gets angry when he sees those who are self-righteous. When he sees those turning his father's house into a den of thieves. When he sees those taking his name and using it for their own glory. Jesus went into the temple and made a whip out of cords and started whipping on some folks. He turned some tables over. Jesus was not a little wimp. He was a carpenter with stone and wood. He was no wimp. And he went in there and he turned that stuff over and got some whips after some people. Why? Because they turned his father's house into a den of thieves. He has compassion toward those who come weeping. And He has judgment and condemnation toward those who are self-righteous and say, I don't need you. We're in one or two camps this morning, you guys. Are you desperate for God? Are you crying out to Him? Do you desire to know Him more than anything else? Are you willing to give Him all that you have? I surrender all. Pastor Don says Christians don't tell lies, they just sing them. You know, I surrender some, you know. No, no, we need to surrender all. Amen? All to Jesus. It's all His. My job, my health, my home, my children, my life. It's yours, Lord. This woman understood that. She gave it all away. Simon is dead critical. Oh, man, look at him touching a sinner. He's defiled. He better get out, the, you know, do the egg washing now. If you were here for the Genesis, you know what I'm talking about. But you know, they have, oh, you've got to do all the rituals now because you have defiled yourself. You know what? The Lord can never defile Himself by touching us. You know what? That's why He came is to touch us. Amen? He's holy God. He will never be defiled. How many sins must I commit to be a sinner? How many? One. How many, well, how many murders do you need to be a murderer? That'd be one, right? So how many sins to be a sinner? One. So it doesn't matter if it's 500 denarii worth of debt or 50 denarii worth of debt. It doesn't matter if you sin one time or 500 billion times. And it's probably closer to the higher number than the lower one. And you know what? It doesn't matter how many you've sinned. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. God can't have one sin in, on earth, or in heaven, excuse me, or He'd have earth part two. Right? There can be no sin in heaven. None. Simon, self-righteous. Oh man, if you're a prophet. And the Lord instead looks at the woman with compassion. His heart is broken for her. Sin is forgiven through His grace. Look at what we'll finish up here. We're going to take communion. Then He turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. He's going to compare Simon to the woman. He said, when I came into your house... Now, this was actually bad news. Back in those days, when you walked into a home, and into a Jewish home, the custom was that you removed your, your sandals. Now, they didn't walk on paved roads, for the most part. They walked through dirt and gunk, and they had sandals on. And so when you walked into someone's house... You know when you, when you were a kid and you walked around all summer with no shoes on and the bottom of your feet were like black? How many of you know that, right? You know, you walk on glass, you know, and the glass would be cracking your, your feet. You know, it's like, you know, there's no problem. You know why? Because your feet were hard and crusty. Well, that was Jewish feet, man. Hard, crusty. So you'd come in, and the first thing they were supposed to do in a polite way, they didn't necessarily have to wash your feet, but at least offer you water so you could stick your gunky, dirty, vile feet 
in that water and get them a little cleaner before you went to sit down to eat. By the way, and they laid reclined like this, and someone's feet was right by your head, so it's probably a good thing if they washed their feet, don't you think, right? Oh, man. So wash those feet, right? So he comes in, and he doesn't even get any water from this guy. Not only did he not even wash his feet, which is what you would do for someone you'd honor, he doesn't even give him any water. You know, Simon, when I showed up here, you didn't give me any water. I entered my house. No water for my feet. But she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. So that means that when she was washing Jesus' feet, his feet were dirty. And she didn't care. And she was crying and didn't care. And she took the oil, anointed him, and didn't care. Why? Because she was in love with the Lord. She wanted to be near him. She wanted to give it all to him. And Simon wouldn't even give him any water for his feet. He treated the Lord without any, even any respect. Look at verse 45. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I came in. A term of affection in those days, still true in the Middle East, someone come in, they'd kiss him on the cheek. So when I came in, you didn't honor me by kissing me on the cheek. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I walked in the door. This woman can't get, wants affection toward me. She's showing love toward me. She's worshiping me. You treated me with disrespect. You treated me with no honor of any kind. You're supposed to be the religious leader. Verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. You know, there was a common thing where they would take just common oil and they would use it as almost like a perfume and they would put on their bodies to overcome sweat. And when he came in, she didn't just anoint his, his head with a tiny drop of oil. She busted open her dowry and poured it all over his feet, this fragrant oil, that as soon as she broke it open, that worship inhabited the entire room. Why? Because she loved the Lord and said, you're more important to me than anything. Simon didn't even know who Jesus was. Simon was oblivious to the fact that he was entertaining the very creator of the universe in his house. The woman came in and went into that place where she was not even invited and fell at his feet and gave all that she had. There's a very clear contrast between Simon and this woman. The, sim the, the woman, sinful woman, humbly kissed him. Look at verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil. This woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is given, same love littles. Same, the same loves little. Now, I want to make it clear that it wasn't her love that saved her. We're going to see that in verse 50. But how does she know that her sins are forgiven? How does she know? Look at verse 48. What did Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. She knows because God told her. Because Jesus told her. Amen? How do you know that your sins are forgiven? Because Jesus told you. The Bible says if Romans 10.9 if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, what? what's the rest of it? You shall be saved. If any man desires... John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Me should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through Him might be saved. So, she knew because He told her we know because He told us. Amen? That's why it's not a hope so. That's why it's a no so. We can know for sure. Because His word is true. Let's finish up. Verse 49. Worship team, come on up. And those who sat at the table with them began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? You know what? Who can forgive sin? God. So who's Jesus proclaiming Himself to be? 
God. God alone can forgive sin. Who is this man who says he can forgive sin? He's God. And lastly, in verse 50, Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Faith produces salvation. The greatest miracle in this entire chapter is right here. In the beginning of the chapter, we saw him speak the word, and the centurion's servant was healed. Later in the chapter, we saw him touch the dead man and the dead boy, and he raised from the dead. But I want to tell you what, this is the greatest miracle of all. The sinful woman, who was probably a prostitute, whose life was a disaster, who came with a repentant heart, who came broken before God, who gave everything that she had, and the Lord touched her, transformed her, and made her a new creation in Christ and said, your sins are forgiven you, and then she was adopted into his family, she's going to heaven, there's no greater miracle in the world than that. Amen? Every one of you, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, that's the greatest miracle that ever happened in the history of all mankind. He said, your sins are forgiven you, and why? Because of her faith in God. Not because of her good works, not even because she poured out the oil, but because she had faith in Him. So as we prepare for communion, let me just say this. We saw our Lord's compassion. We saw his love, him, comm- him commending the fruitfulness of John's ministry. Then we saw him condemn those who rejected his prophet. And then lastly, we saw his compassion toward a sinful woman. And I love what he says there lastly, go in peace. If you know God, you walk in peace. If you don't know God, you cannot know peace. Because there's no other place you can find it. Let's close the word of prayer and then we'll prepare for communion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for your compassion. We thank you, Lord, for the example of this woman. Lord, may we have hearts that she had, Father God, to worship you completely, not to hold anything back. Father, may we weep over our sin. May we come before you, Father God, and and give up our glory that you might be glorified. That, Lord, we would pour out just everything that we have unto you. Father, we ask right now as you prepare our hearts for communion, Lord, that we would never allow to grow common what you did for us on the cross. We ask all these things in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Here at Calvary Chapel, real quick, just going to take a moment.